Jesus as the missionary king. Um, we're coming specifically this week to look at Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. It's usually the part of Luke 19 we kind of skip over. Um, before this was the triumphal entry. Um, next week we'll see Jesus um, overturning tables and cleansing the temple. Um, because of those two events on either side, we tend to just kind of breeze past um, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Uh, but we shouldn't. There's, there's a lot there here in these short few verses. And so this morning, briefly, um, we'll take a look at this passage and see what it says about what God thinks um, about sin and about grace and about missions. Um, and so um, with that preface, why don't I read to us God's word. And when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because this is the word of our God, why don't we pray this morning before we consider it. Father, we're grateful for your word. Um, every single word preserved throughout history to be your revelation to us, first and foremost, about who you are, Lord God, and secondly, how you expect and teach us to live in the world. And so we pray that we, as we come to your scriptures, would see your son, Jesus, that we would love him, that we would celebrate him, that we would give our very lives to him. And so we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, so as we come to this particular passage and understand what Jesus is doing here, you have to understand how the Old Testament looks at the people of God and especially Israel. The Old Testament, over the thousands of years that it progressed, is one big object lesson that we cannot look to fallen men or even collections of fallen men and women in things like God's people, Israel, the nation-state of Israel, or Jerusalem, we cannot look to those for our hope for the future. And so when you see the Old Testament story plow ahead, there's Adam and Eve and their community and family, they fall into sin, and so all of their natural-born children are born sinful. Um, they start to proceed, and we find that sin affects all of their different relations. It goes to the creation of the Tower of Babel, where men and women build a tower to boast of their own great name. Um, God says this is not good for people to grow in pride, and so God separates them and confuses the languages. And then you get to Genesis 12, where God starts over again, after the flood with Abraham and says, I am going to make you into a great people. I'm going to bless you and you are going to be called my own and kings are going to come from you and the nations will be blessed because of you. He makes these tremendous promises to Abraham. And so the question from Genesis 12 forward is, how is God going to bring about these great promises that we all long for? And the thought is that he's going to do it through these people and through all of these children that come from Abraham. And so you see Abraham grow into a nation out from the 12 tribes of Israel. You see them leave Egypt and through Moses grow into a nation. It continues to progress. We get to Saul and that's not so great. But then we get to King David and that's awesome. It's the height of the Israelite nation. And we get to Solomon and it looks like Solomon with all of his wisdom is going to bring about the 
answer and fulfillment of those promises to Abraham until Solomon falls into apostasy because he had wives who worshiped foreign deities and by marrying outside of the covenant community, he was pulled away into apostasy himself. He dies, and we think that his son might pick up the slack after Saul had fallen. We find the conflict between his son Rehoboam and an upstart Jeroboam, and all of a sudden the kingdom is split. And so what had gone from the power of Israel, the beauty of Jerusalem, the importance of, um, of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem, now is starting to fall apart into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so all of a sudden Israel starts to shrink. What was a big kingdom is now north and south. North goes into exile, and they think, well, maybe the south is going to bring about the promises of God. Maybe we'll see revival amongst the people of God. And you see the south start to fall into apostasy, and the south shrinks down to Judah. And in the tribe of Judah starts to fall into apostasy, you see it shrink down to Israel. You see Israel start to fall into apostasy, and it shrinks down to the temple mount where the temple is, where God's presence is still there. And it looks like the promises of God are holding on by just this fine thread. And then as Ezekiel shows, the, the spirit leaves the temple and the temple's destroyed as even the southern kingdom goes into exile. And the hopes of the people of God are shattered. And they think everything's over. Then God brings them out of exile and brings them back into their land. And we see Nehemiah and we see Ezra help encourage the people in the rebuilding of the land. There's even the rebuilding of the temple and things are going back up again. And they get to the temple and there's worshiping. But the occasion is a a mix of sadness and worshiping. It says there towards the end of the Old Testament where the temple is rebuilt and the people are worshiping there. That there is a mixture of joy and of sadness that all the young people who've never seen the temple before are worshiping and saying, this is great, we have a temple, and this is awesome. But the older folk are weeping because they remembered what the temple had looked like and the new temple did not match the opulence and beauty of what the temple had been. And so the people of God were hoping and waiting for Israel, for Jerusalem again to bring about the promises that God had promised through Abraham. And so you had groups like the Pharisees in Jesus' day who said, the problem is we have fallen away from a strict observance of Mosaic law. If we observe these laws, we might be able to usher again the kind of promises that God promised to Abraham that have yet to be fulfilled. And so Jesus comes now on the road to Jerusalem and his final days before his death and he starts weeping over Jerusalem and he gives one final condemnation on the city and shows that the hope of the fulfillment of God's covenant promises are not going to be through the nation state of Israel they're not going to be through the temple they're not going to be through Jerusalem Jerusalem itself in just a few days is going to reject God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to their midst. And Jesus here is prophesying about what would happen a mere 40 years later. This is kind of the early 30s A.D. Um, By 70 A.D., Rome is going to come through and is going to demolish Jerusalem and the temple itself. And so Jesus is predicting 
what will finally happen here to Jerusalem. And what he's also doing is showing us as the church where our hope should be. Our hope is not that Israel or the church is finally going to be obedient enough to bring about the promises of God. The point of the Old Testament was to show a people and individual kings that though they had great promise, and though they may have even walked with the Lord with a humble heart, yet they were not the Messiah. They could not bring about the promises of God. And that was to teach us to look to Christ alone for salvation. And so Jesus coming in, weeping over Jerusalem at the same time is showing that he himself is the one who's going to bring about the promises of Abraham. So Genesis 12 is fulfilled in Jesus. Paul mentions that a number of times in Galatians and other places. You read in Matthew, when Matthew's talking about Jesus' early days when he's born and um, Joseph and Mary have to flee because Herod's um, trying to kill Jesus and he flees to Egypt. And then after Herod dies, we have an angel going to Joseph and Mary saying, you can go home now. The guy who was seeking to kill your son is himself dead. It's safe. And Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1 and says, it has been fulfilled out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, you're saying, wait, I thought Hosea was talking about Israel when they came out of Egypt under Moses. And Matthew says, no, 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 he's really talking about Jesus. So that Israel really pointed to the Christ. Or if we see John writing in the early um, parts, and watch, they see this, the cleansing of the temple. When Jesus cleanses the temple, he says, well, they're upset. Say, what right and authority do you have to cleanse the temple and say all these things about the temple? Who are you? You're like carpenter turned bivocational Jewish pastor. How can you say all these things? And Jesus' response is, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it again. They're like, that's ridiculous. Like, you're not like Faulkner Construction. Like, you don't have, like, how are you going to build a temple in three days? Like, we have the record of Nehemiah and Ezra. Like, it took them years and years, and still the old folk were upset with it. And so we, we, we get through those things, and it says, John narrating that, that Jesus was talking about his body. So the fulfillment of the temple was the body of Jesus. That the temple was a physical creation in which the Holy Spirit dwelled, where people were united to God in worship and was still faulty and incomplete. So Jesus is, in his humanity, physical creation, where the Holy Spirit dwells, where people come and find forgiveness and worship God. And so Jesus is the true temple. And so part of Jesus coming into the city and weeping over the city is because the city, in its apostasy and running away, God, run away from God, is a picture of the judgment on seeking rightness before God through your own works, or a people seeking prosperity through a nation, which is important for us to remember on July 4th. Now, many pastors this morning are preaching that, you know, God's blessed America, America is the new Israel, and America is going to usher in all the promises of the Old Testament. That is garbage. It is unhelpful exegesis. The promises of God are realized through Jesus Christ alone, not through God's blessing on America. I hope God blesses America. I hope God uses our nation as much as he can. But America is not the new Israel. 
And so it's important for us to remember that. And you see that in this passage where Jesus is weeping here over Jerusalem. But the other important thing as he talks about this and you see Jesus is that he's weeping. A study that you might find helpful is to read through the Gospels and note the emotions of Jesus. Um, One of the things we say about God and his attributes is that he doesn't have passions in our older words. And what that means is that he did not have emotions that would lead him astray. But what happened when Jesus became man, truly man and truly God, we see fully God expressing fully true emotions. And so we get a picture into the emotions of God and what God cares about and weeps over and is happy over and celebrates over through the emotions of Jesus Christ. And so, I I mean, I even wonder what you would think as you look at this. If Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's about to kill him. Jerusalem is the picture of apostasy and heresy, of rejecting God, of rejecting God's covenant purposes, of refusing to live by mercy and grace, instead of trying to chart their own spiritual project and resume. Wouldn't it make better sense for Jesus to come in and say, What's the matter with you? I have sent prophets to you over and over and over again. And here I am as God Almighty, and look how you're treating me. You were so backwards and unspiritual, and about four days, you were going to kill me. And I'm the only one who can save you. How stupid could you be? Now, in that exaggeration, you probably get that it is an exaggeration. But I wonder how many of you put that tone on the voice of your God when you yourself walk through sin and realize you've been in sin. I wonder how many of you blaspheme our God, blasphemy, that you make him to be a different God, that you take his name and character and run it through the mud so that when you sin, the voice you put on your God is, stupid, how many times have I forgiven you? Why can't you get your spiritual act together? You have the Bible, you have all of these things. What's the matter with you? And here we have Jesus walking into an apostate nation that's going to reject him. And he's grieving And he's weeping over the sinful rebellion of a people made in the image of God. Now, he has also talked about a very real judgment. So God's grief and sorrow over sin does not mean in any way he's weak. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have the strength to carry through injustice. He's going to carry through injustice. He's going to see that Jerusalem as a city is punished for their sins and that individuals who reject him in this life will end up in the eternal punishment that Jesus has already spoken about. But in a very real, strong, true justice and wrath against sin, he still grieves over the rebellion of his creatures. So what that looks like to us, it it brings two different sides of this, and the first is the one I've already talked about. 
Very clearly in Ephesians, Paul says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 12, it says that part of God's fatherly care over us is that he disciplines us when we fall into sin. And that's how you can know that he's your loving father. Now, one of the ways you can know who my children are in this group is that I'm the one that disciplines them. And so out of all the children that gather on a Sunday, which one are Joe's kids? The ones that he disciplines because he loves those kids particularly. Just like your kids are the ones that you discipline. And so if you've never known the discipline of God for sin, then you should wonder whether you're one of his children. But in that discipline, God weeps and grieves over your sin. When you walk away from him, when you fall into sin, God is not standing over you, shaking his fists, berating and demeaning you like some of our earthly fathers have done. God is grieved over our sin, and God offers abundant mercy and grace through the Lord Jesus. And when we're in our sins, the important thing about our sin is to see it the way that God sees it. See, the reason that you sin is because you don't see it as the way that God sees it. You see temptation and you think, hmm, that looks good. I think maybe there's some wiggle room in my walk with God that maybe I could do that. I mean, nobody's going to be hurt. I mean, what, is God really that exacting? I, I think maybe I could dabble with this. That's what leads to us committing sin. Where when God looks at sin and looks at us in our sin, he grieves and is sad over our sin because it costs his son his own dear life and because he knows that sin will always wreak havoc in our lives. And when we sin, we believe the lie that God is not good and he's not given us everything and that we need to do an end run on his mercy, an end run on his law and say, yeah, 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 that's the way I should live my life, but I think you left something out. I think I'm unique, God, and I think that there's something over here that I should try instead to make me happy. And the problem is we don't get a clear view of our sin. And so part of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and coming in and pleading over Jerusalem is hearing the weeping and pleading of God when we are in our sin. Not berating and demeaning, but sorrow and also offering you grace and mercy. And so when you're in your sin, the Holy Spirit is grieved. And God loves you and invites you by his mercy back to grace. He pleads with you to repent and to join him in his grief over your sin. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. That's literally what the Greek word means. It's metanoia. Meta means change. Noia means mind. And so the word repentance, translated in Greek, is literally a change of mind. Which means we change our mind, and we change our mind to what God thinks about it. And so I wonder how many of you this morning, in the weeping of grieving of Jesus, need to hear him sorrowful when you sin, and also him encouraging with his grace that he loves you, that he forgives you, that he invites you back to repent and walk in new obedience, and that all of your sins are forgiven, but not by some kind of bank transaction that pops up on a notification on your phone. Yes, you've sinned. Yes, you're forgiven. Through a real relationship with God who grieves and rejoices, who sings over you and laments, who is with you in this progress of shaping you into more of a person like Christ. And so the first thing we see in Jesus' weeping over sin is how he comes to us. 
And part of the reason that we don't see the kind of change that we'd like to see when we fall into sin and repent is that we try and goad ourselves through feeling bad about our sins without truly seeing our sin as God sees it and seeing ourselves through the light and mercy of how he sees us. And so we try and bring about the correction of behavior through feeling bad enough rather than bringing our behavior to the Lord God seeing it as he sees it, and trusting in his grace and mercy. So changing, his, changing our minds both about our sin and our identity. Yeah, our sin was bad, and we're forgiven. Dearly loved children. We leave that aside, and we do it the way the world does. Beat ourselves up in the hopes of becoming better. And so the invitation here in this passage is to see Jesus' emotion, his, his passions over sin and rebellion. And to know now, as dearly loved children, that as we fall into sin, it, it, it does grieve God and his Holy Spirit. And part of the joy we have is entering into the grief of God over our sin, but also the joy of God in us as his dearly loved children. How much do you think about taking your emotions and having the same emotions as God has? Do you know about renewing your mind and say, I want to think the same truths that God has? Do you feel the same things that God feels? Do you feel the same way that God feels about you? Probably not. And so there's a good place for us to bring correction and repentance and to make sure that we're not making our God, blaspheming our God, to be this angry, demeaning God, rather than a God of love and grief, a God of mercy and sorrow, a God of delight in his children as his dearly loved children. But the second side of this is we see Jesus' missionary love for Jerusalem. He's talking to the city as a whole. Isn't that odd? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he's talking to Jerusalem as a whole about their spiritual state. Have you ever thought that God cares about cities? We might say God cares about individuals in that city and wants to see individuals repent of their sins and grow in faith. But sometimes he speaks of cities as a whole and longs for the kind of revivals that can sweep all the way through cities. And so here Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem and their spiritual state. What do you, what do we think about Culpepper and Culpepper's spiritual state of Orange and Madison? We may not, probably haven't wept over it. Have we been sorrowful over the state of our towns and counties? over the state of Virginia, do we long with Jesus' passion to see revival sweep communities and cultures? A part of where we are as a church is that we want to be here in Culpeper because we love Culpeper. We want to see Culpeper reached with the gospel. And we should believe, as a dear friend of mine says, in believing that God's an electing God and that salvation is 100% God, that does not preclude God from saving an entire town. God could, in his sovereignty, convert every single person in Culpeper. I mean, 100% population saved, walking with Jesus, truly converted. That could happen within God's sovereignty. And so when we look at Culpeper and we say we know a few Christians, we should not be content and say it's reached. Would we be a people who weep over the fact 
that there are people who right now in our communities, in our neighborhoods, on Virginia Avenue, in the different places here who don't know Jesus and don't have anybody to bring the gospel to him. I mean, to them. It's like the book of Jonah. I mean, the, the real missionary um, in, in the book of Jonah is God, and, and the real missional work is really Jonah. Like, God's really trying to get at Jonah. Nineveh's kind of the side thing. You know, God says, all right, Jonah, you are going to go to Nineveh, and you're going to preach, and they're all going to be converted. And Jonah says, no, thank you. I do not like those people. I, I, do you know the Ninevites? Like, I, there's no way that I'm going to go there. Because if I go there, you're going to do what you said. You're going to save them. I don't want to see people like that saved, much less that kind of community saved. Do you know what they've done to your people, God? No thanks. I'd rather go to Tarshish. And that typically is the way. Um, God is a rather stubborn God and, um, and will have his way with us and brings a fish um, and make sure that Jonah ends up at Nineveh. Jonah preaches through Nineveh. Nineveh is like so thoroughly saved at the end of Nineveh, it says this many people along with the cattle. Like if the cows are responding to your gospel proclamation, I don't know how that works. If the cattle are responding, that is serious revival. And Jonah leaves and he goes out the city, outside of the city and he's upset again. And he's, in his upsetness, he's, you know, it's a 90 degree day in July and he, this, this plant grows up and over him gives him shade and the plant dies away. Um, and, and, and Jonah, you know, God uses that as an object lesson to say, why are you so upset that these people aren't saved? He said, Jesus, Jesus is the true Jonah. Jonah didn't want Nineveh to be saved. After Nineveh was saved, he was still upset about it. And God was really working on Jonah. Jesus comes and looks at entire cultures and towns and counties, and he weeps over them, and he sends his missionaries to them that the gospel might be heard and that on a culture, community, town level, they might see revival and conversion. It, it's happened before. I mean, right now, in our age of all the crazy gender sin and sexual sin and all these things are going on in our culture, the reason that our culture is, what our culture is changing is what for so long was Christian morality that held sway ever since the 5th century in the Roman Empire. See, Christians were this upstart group of persecuted folks, and over the course of 300 years, they became the majority religion in Rome. And because of their sexual ethic, the culture as a whole saw that and said, whoa, that's way better than what we're doing. And so cultures adopted the moral sexual ethic of Christianity that held sway in Western culture for so long and only now is being eroded. So you see, even apart from salvation, Christians living as a distinct community in a specific place have a huge influence over that community for good. So you see the promises of Abraham coming true in Jesus when God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations through you. Culpepper is blessed because Christians live in her. Not, even if Culpepper isn't converted like Nineveh was, it is a better place because Christians are living a distinctively Christian work here. And so what does it look like for us as a congregation to have the same emotions about our, our culture, about Culpeper, about Madison, about Orange, 
about Virginia? Do you have a passion to reach your neighborhood for Christ? Do you believe because you live there that maybe 10 to 20% of your neighborhood might meet Jesus? Or 30 or 40 or 80 or 100% just because he took missionaries and put them into your neighborhood? One of the things I tell the Mormons when they come and hit my, my house, we have a little loop that come around, and especially if I'm working in the basement during the day, I see them when they come to my house. Um, and I not only tell them, we have two different gospels, and it will cost one of us our lives. And I pray that you will repent and believe in Jesus Christ as God Almighty, second person of the Trinity. But I say, and by the way, this neighborhood is my mission field, not yours. I live here you don't. I love these people and God called me here to share the gospel. So I want you to know as you hit these houses and go all the way around, you do this in one day. I'm spending the whole year undermining what you're doing in this place because this is my neighborhood where God has called me. Do you think of Culpeper that way? Do you think of Falk here and Madison and Orange there? That's your county. God called you as a missionary to that place to reach people for the gospel. And he has put behind you the leverage and power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of the risen Christ. And nothing, not even the very walls of Satan, will stand up to that as we approach the end of all things. Do you weep over your culture, over your county, over your neighborhood, over your workplace, over your neighborhood, and long to see it change with the gospel? Because Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Or do you look at your culture and say, eh, Culpepper's lost, America's lost, forget about it. Not only do I have the luxury, it is disobedient to our God to think of our culture that way. He has called us to engage as a distinct community for the sake of the community as missionaries wherever he takes us. And so that's what he longs for. So what does it look like for you to walk in obedience to this? First of all, believe and maybe repent that God is way more merciful and loving and grieves over your sin more than he does. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, they sinned again. He, he's sorrowful, and he makes a way for you to repent, and you are a work in progress. He who started a good work in you will finish it in the day of Christ Jesus. You definitely should work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but do it knowing it's he who works in you to will and do of your own pleasure is forming you into the image of Jesus. And so, yes, it's his work, but he grieves over your sin, and part of entering into the grief over God's, God's grief over our sin is how he changes the people and can celebrate his grace and mercy to us. Secondly, do you, well, secondly and lastly, what does it look like for us to care about Culpeper to that degree? And as a church culture, to cultivate a passion for our culture largely, to pray for revival. Um, one of the things that I do, and one of the things I'm glad to be in Virginia, is I, I study the history of Virginia. Um, one of my ancestors was a pastor. He died in 1818 um, over in Fishersville. He's a Scotch Presbyterian pastor. He planted the first six churches west of the Alleghenies and then settled down, settled down in Fishersville um, and was the pastor, the second pastor there of Tinkling Springs Presbyterian Church in Fishersville. Um, he had a passion to reach this. I know it's not a great church name. It just isn't. We should just say, Tinkling Springs, not what you, I, I say that in people's faces are always like, did somebody really name their church that? Yes, they did name their church that. Not a great church name. Um, so, moving on from that, um, he cared and loved and wanted to see um, the state of Virginia, the colony of Virginia, reached with the gospel. 
And there have been times that revival has swept our state. There have been times that large numbers of people in a punctuated way have been brought to salvation in Christ. And it's been cyclical. It's been a while. That encourages me. I, I want to see revival sweep through Virginia again. Part of the reason that I'm here in Culpeper, that I wanted to plant this church, and I still want to see more churches planted, is because I want to see revival. I just don't want a church. I want to see a host of churches. As I told you before, like, maybe not in our day. But if it's not in our day, if we're not going to be Solomon, let us be David. You know, the reason I use that analogy is David said, God, I love you. I want to build a temple for you. And God said to David, nope, not you, but your son will do it. And so David didn't say, all right, I guess it's going to be Solomon. You know, let me pick up my golf game and my retirement and do what I can. David said, well, if Solomon's going to build a temple, he's going to need a bunch of help. And so David started stockpiling resources in the terms of people and the kind of wisdom that Solomon would need. And so David did everything he could, even though he wouldn't see it, so that when Solomon came along, he had the wealth and the knowledge and the ability and the capable people around him to build the temple. Maybe not in our day. Maybe in our kids' day. Maybe in our kids' kids' day, the Lord would bring revival. But what does it look like for us to be David's? To say, we want to preserve biblical orthodoxy. We want to grow healthy churches. We want to preach the gospel so that our children know a healthier American church culture than what we knew. What does it look like for us to invest in the day? So maybe it's two or three generations, revival comes. They have all the wealth and resources of a robust gospel orthodoxy and the way it's practiced in everyday life for them to fall back on. Let's prepare for revival whenever it comes. And it starts by weeping over our city and having a heart for our city and our community and our neighborhoods. And it starts before that, understanding how that works in our own hearts that we weep and grieve our own sin and cling to the own God, our, our own God of gospel grace. Why don't I pray for us as I conclude. Father, would you, as you do the great work of sanctification, as you define that work in your word as transforming us into the image of Jesus, that we're becoming more like Christ, as you do that great renovating work, would you not just give us the thoughts of Jesus, not just give us the actions of Jesus, but would you give us the emotions of Jesus about sin, about people who don't know you, even about ourselves and his love and delight in us as dearly bought children? Would you, Lord, transform even how we feel about the world around us? And would you give us tears for Culpepper that one day will break into tears of rejoicing in the revival we hope and long for? We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus our Christ. Amen. Why don't we stand and respond in song?